Hi Disco Citizens and welcome to the Metaphorical Boat's new podcast. I'm your captain, Christopher McBride. The Metaphorical Boat podcast is a chance for me to sit down with some of our favourite musicians, learn a little bit more about them, about their music, their influences and most importantly, how they take their tea. Joining us on the Metaphorical Boat today is Owen Denver. Owen Denver is a singer-slash-songwriter-slash-viola player who has racked up millions of hits online for his intricate cover versions of popular songs and has also released several critically acclaimed EPs, most recently the Motion Picture Soundtrack EP in February 2017. Owen, thanks a lot for joining us here on the Metaphorical Boat. Thanks so much for having me on board. Uh, We're going to be talking a bit more about your music and your influences, but first of all, all our guests on the Metaphorical Boat are treated to a delicious caffeinated drink and a bun or biscuit of their choice. So, Owen, what have you gone for today? Um, well, what I was just stuffing my face with there <laughs> to try and get rid of before you finish your intro was a 15 and a cup of coffee. Now, for some of our listeners who may not know what a 15 is, because it's quite an Irish thing, what is a 15? Yeah, that's always a difficult one to show, because when you actually show people a picture of it, they're like, that looks like someone threw up. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> so it's a combination of like digestive biscuit, coconut, cherry and marshmallow. Yeah, oh yeah. And it's all sort of jumbled together with some condensed milk, oh, and yeah. it's incredible. And I've gone for my usual, a nice cup of coffee, and of course, Battenbergs. You can't go wrong with those. I really wish I had video on this, just to show off these Battenbergs. Oh yeah, they're definitely the nicest. <laughs> <laughs> First question, who is Owen Denver? Um, that's me right here. Oh, Remember? hello. Okay. <laughs> so I am a musician. I sort of came through orchestras when I was younger, um, but oh, always kind of secretly had this passion for more alternative music. Well, I was really into pop music and sort of indie rock music and this sort of sp- like spawned this weird kind of uh, mashup that I have between classical music and alternative indie music. So I'll uh, write and record some combination of that sort of genre and combine that all into one wonderful live set. Okay. Uh, when did you first start getting involved in music? I was given a violin when I was maybe eight or nine and it was a bit weirdly done where I think we were like primary five or something and we were told the first four people that finished this test get to play the violin and I remember being really focused where I was like right I really want to learn to play the violin but it wasn't that bright so I knew that it probably wasn't going to happen but uh, I ended up being the first one finished and I was like this is a bit weird like what's going on have I like done this really wrong or something and I just went up and showed them this test that I'd done and they're like yeah no yeah you can play the violin there. <laughs> That's funny enough, I, actually, I did the same test when I was in P3, so it was the same in our class, so I'm trying to remember what the test was. I think what it was is they played two notes, and you had to say whether they were the same or different. Well, that sounds, like, that sounds quite logical. I think what we had was, it, I think it was probably like a maths test or something, something completely unrelated. So I don't really know <laughs> <laughs> the education system's failness there. So you started on the violin. When did you move over to the viola? When I got big, giant sausage fingers. So I had a very big growth spurt and suddenly the violin was way too small for me and my teacher suggested I switch to the viola and it was partly to fill in a void of viola players that didn't exist in my school. So I suddenly got thrust into like the senior orchestra and the senior quartet despite being quite young and you're just sort of like you're thrown into the deep end and you have to keep up. 
How, how different is the violin from the viola? How does it differ from the bronze? Well, to play the viola, you have to be like significantly cooler than violin players. Oh, of course. So there's certain criteria you have to match in that respect, and that's pretty much it. So uh, you're playing the viola in the orchestra. When you were doing this, were you were you interested in other types of music? Yeah, well, I never really listened to classical music that much, and if I did, it was more just more so just in the background. And I always thought that that was how it worked. Like after orchestra, people would just go home and listen to Radiohead. And yeah, that was just what I was always more passionate about. So the first time I discovered Damien Rice, that was a really big deal for me because I related a lot with him. And I was like, I want that to be my job. That's really cool. Would Damien Rice have been one of your big influences whenever you were starting to start out with? Yeah, I had like every single like bootleg copy of every song that he'd ever recorded. And uh, I learned to play them all on guitar as well. Yeah, it was just I really loved the way that he wrote songs and it just seemed so kind of uh, such a cool way to express yourself because he was just a solo singer-songwriter but um, he managed to sort of make these really lavish albums that sort of went in all these different directions. And what other artists would you have been listening to around the same time? You mentioned Radiohead there as well mm. as Damien Rice, but what other artists would you have listened to? I also got into uh, Bell X1 basically con because of the Damien Rice connection there. My brother told me this used to be Damien Rice's band, so oh, yeah. that, was a bit, that was like all the convincing I needed to listen to. And I also loved, there was no real genre that I stuck to. Like Muse were my favorite band for about six months. I really loved Absolution and Origin of Symmetry. And Queens of the Stone Age got really into. Block Party, Razorlight, mostly kind of rocky stuff, to be honest. What would you say is your favorite song ever? That's quite a difficult one to answer. As I say before, whenever I answer the question, I always feel like there's two answers. One is, what's your favourite song and what's your favourite Beatles song? Yeah, I was actually I was listening to Phil Taggart on Radio 1 last night and he said, he played uh, with a little help from my friends because of um, Sergeant Pepper's being 50 years old. And he said he lives by one rule, which is, do not trust anybody that doesn't like the Beatles. <laughs> I think it's even difficult to say what your favourite Beatles song is. Even. Yeah. I'll say, um, happiness is a warm gun. Oh, that's a nice one. I really love that tune. Yeah. It's just it's so weird and disjointed, but so good for it. Favourite song? Let's just say... Because I've been listening to Absolution again uh, by Muse, I would say my favourite song is Butterflies and Hurricanes. Oh, that is a good one. And now I feel like I want to change my answer to Plug In Baby. <laughs> I'm just going gonna, gonna, to no, lock in with uh, Butterflies and Hurricanes. When did you first start writing your own songs? When did that start to kick in? That was almost as soon as I first picked up a guitar. My mum taught me my first chord on the guitar and um, I wasn't really very focused in learning another chord so I just kind of wrote my own songs instead, centered around <laughs> one chord. That probably would have been when I was about 12 maybe. Yeah. And so when did you start writing songs a bit more regularly after that? I think songwriting had always been relatively regular for me because I was quite a sort of weird kid. I wasn't incredibly vocal when I was younger so I would always secretly had this plan to release albums and that would be how I would express myself. So I had like these ideas for concepts for a long time, but the songs never actually got finished. It wasn't really until I was about 15 that I started to actually finish songs. And even then it was recording songs for like my brother's birthday because it was too cheap to buy him a present. <laughs> and I just really liked doing it. I put some songs online uh, back in the days of Bebo. <laughs> and, uh, oh, that's going back some time. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of my friends didn't know that I played the guitar or sang or wrote songs, so that was quite nice to show to them what I could do. 
And there was one song I wrote when I was like 16 that I was never able to write a better song for like years and years and I really resented it yeah. because we would always like pass a guitar around when we were drunk and I kept writing loads of new songs thinking like this will be like my new like cool song but they'd still be like no I play Chick Flicks, play Chick Flicks really like that <laughs> one and I just never got over this tune. Yeah. Was the song called Chick Flicks? It was called You'd Best Start Believing in Chick, Flick, Chick Flicks, You're In One. Yeah. I don't like a yeah. parts of the Caribbean yeah. twist, but um, it was kind of like Damien Rice esque. Do you still play that song live, or have you revisited it since you wrote it? I kind of shelved it because I've always secretly resented it that it was more <laughs> popular than anything else that I wrote. I might bring it out of retirement at some stage, but I think it sort of summarizes me as a 16 year old more so than how I am now. So, whenever you were writing songs, would you write? the songs on the guitar or would you write them the viola? How would you write a song? Um, I would kind of have a bit of a combination between writing them in my head first or writing them on piano first or writing them on guitar first um, because sometimes you never really know where ideas are going to come from. It tends to be that if you started on guitar it becomes very guitar heavy and it's all about like riffs and things but then if you start it in your head it's kind of more about vocal melodies. I found that when I was living in Edinburgh I wrote most of my songs. I wrote um, Jackhammer and Human Touch when I was walking like to and from town and um, just because I had like I think it was like a two mile walk in the town and it's, it was just quite nice to sort of think about stuff and I kind of accidentally wrote some songs and it's kind of weird to not even have an instrument there I just kind of like yeah. pictured how the whole thing was going to look um, or sound by the time I got to the end of the street or whatever. Yeah. Do you ever find it hard if you write songs that way trying to translate it over to a guitar or a piano and just trying to match up with how it sounds in your head, you ever have those problems? Yeah, well, sometimes the problem is it sounds amazing in your head and then you apply it note for note as you would to a piano or a keyboard or whatever and it sounds awful and you're like, what's going on? What's This keyboard must be broken. What's this all about? But um, I'm not really that hung up on songs until I really feel like I've got a lot of good hooks in there and sometimes you'll shelve it for a week and then listen to it again, having thought it was the best song ever and then you'll just suddenly a week later think that it's the worst thing in the entire world and you never want to see the light of day ever again. Yeah. So it's kind of a toss up between the two. You don't really know what way it's going to go. Yeah. So uh, when did you first start playing like as Owen Denver? I don't think I really started properly playing live until I was in Edinburgh and I was kind of forced into it by friends. I was working over there and had basically been saying how I was looking to start doing more live performance. And one of my friends just called me out on it because really I'd been saying this for like years and I was just too terrified to actually go up on a stage and perform. And they just organized a fundraiser for me and they were like, well, you're going to play at it. And then I was like, oh, OK, that's OK. And then it was during the Edinburgh Fringe and I actually really enjoyed it. Um, but I think I stared at the ground for most of it. But it was really fun and I got a bit hooked on it and I really wanted to just do more and more of it. Then when I moved back to Belfast, I had... Well, I branded as a homecoming gig and basically just played all these songs that I'd written when I was in Edinburgh and all my friends and family came along and yeah it was really fun. I got onto the Belfast gigging scene here. Yeah. What What's the music scene like in Edinburgh? Is it very different than what it would be like in Belfast or are there similarities? There are similarities in the way that there would be a lot of a lot of the bars would have live music um, but really it's much more of a kind of cover scene. I wouldn't say there's as much of kind of grassroots like indie songwriter type vibe there. I think it's partly because there's this 
sort of half and half with Edinburgh that a lot of it's sort of finance based a lot of the city um, has a lot of money coming through it and it's lots of rich people with sports cars yeah. that aren't necessarily interested in um, the underground music scene and then there's the students who are studying there who are only going to be there for three or four years so yeah I just don't think there's much of a like base there for live music as there is for like cover music and cocktail bars and stuff like that which yeah. is what I was doing when I was over there the yeah. thing about is you probably get a lot more of the touring bands coming around. Yeah, um, actually when I first moved to Edinburgh, um, a mate and his band played in Bannermans after I'd been there for like a couple of weeks and it was so nice to see him and see the band because I was just hanging out with Northern Irish people for a little bit. So when when did you decide to leave Edinburgh behind to come back to Belfast? Two years ago maybe. And I just decided that uh, I wanted to focus on music uh, full time. And whether or not that would actually be a mistake, I didn't know. But I just kind of thought, I don't really want to... Do anything else. Yeah, and I don't want to yeah, regret it years down the line. So I have not looked back, and I've been very happy because I've really enjoyed it. Was it easy to start gigging in Belfast, given that you'd already cut, always cut your teeth in Edinburgh? That was definitely a factor to it, but it was just very different types of gigging. Because I kind of became like a... Like, I never really played covers in Edinburgh. Every time I was given a cover gig, I didn't realize I was supposed to be playing covers. So I just played my own stuff. And it was actually really good for writing, but I basically wrote, like, cocktail bar-type music. And that was kind of where uh, my first EP came from, the Daydreamer EP. Um, and Belfast isn't quite so low-key in terms of the music that you play, so my set has actually changed quite a lot since I've been here. Just because you want stuff that's a bit more kind of... Not in your face, necessarily, just a bit more kind of visceral and, yeah, it's kind of difficult to describe. But So the Daydreamer EP, that was the first release that you came out with whenever you came back to Belfast. Mm. How, how did that go down? How, how did people react to the EP? It was great. Uh, I got a lot of spins on Radio Ulster, which was um, really good of them. Um, it's always really good support. I did a duet with Hannah McPhillamy on that track. But there's such a good community of musicians in Belfast anyway, so I was collaborating with a lot of um, really good artists for that EP. Peter McCauley was playing drums on it. That's uh, Peter McCauley from Rams Pocket Radio. Uh-huh. I'd provided a lot of viola for him over the years, so this was finally some payback. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, appearing on Rams Pocket Radio records was all like, it was a real pleasure to be a part of. So do you think there's a lot of support for musicians in Northern Ireland and in Belfast? Yeah, um, I think a hub like the OES Centre is always really good because they're really, like, very specifically fighting for your corner, which is really good to know. And then on top of that, you're just sort of, yeah, trying to encourage people to go to live gigs and, yeah, yeah. collaborating with other talented yeah. musicians. Who would you say would be your favourite uh, local musicians playing around Northern Ireland at the minute? Do you have any real favourites? Well, the last musicians I saw, um, I went to a gig during women's work. And as I say, Hannah McPhillamy, last time I saw her, um, they really blew me away. Um, I hadn't seen her in quite a while. We used to do a few tours together, so just having that break and seeing it again was kind of put it into perspective. And I've done a few gigs with Rosie Carney um, this summer too, who is just incredible. Yeah, um, I think she's been tipped for big things. Yeah, uh -huh. and then obviously Ryan McMullen, who is already a big thing. Yeah. He's, his voice is just something else. No, I think I'll... A lot of your fans would have first uh, come across your music through your pretty 
if I may say so, impressive online videos of you doing covers of quite well-known songs in your own way. Just for people who may not be familiar, how would you describe those videos? So um, I've made these videos that um, are usually split up into either three or four parts where I'll be recording myself playing uh, one part of the performance all in one take. So one part of the screen will be me playing uh, viola, one will be playing guitar, one will be playing piano. And then I splice them all together so that it's like a live band of three Owen Denvers or four Owen Denvers all playing at the same time. And I've done mashups of bands and mashups of different songs slot together and sometimes songs that I really like. Yeah. How long does it take to, for one of those to come together? Because looking at it, it looks like you just play one after another, so you think it may only take 10 minutes, but how long does it take to arrange it and then record it and then make sure that everything uh, matches together? Actually, just like 10 minutes, yeah. Oh. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I like to have uh, a little period where I'm sort of planning out what I'm doing. So I tend to record um, certain parts in like 10 second segments. And I'll be like, right, that'll go over here, and then that'll go over here, and I sort of chop it around like a jigsaw until I've filled in all the spaces where I'm thinking, oh, I can do like a harmony part here and a harmony part here. And sometimes when you're trying to sort of dissect it, you find all these different ways to add other songs in. So I like to have like a couple of days where I'm just sort of playing around with it and then leaving it and then playing around with it. And then I virtually have like a really, really rough version of the audio already recorded when I actually go to play it live. Yeah. And then I'm just doing it in one take to try and do it much better than I've done it in my little demo version. Yeah, I must say for me the most impressive part is the harmony, just getting those harmonies just right, because it seems like the sort of thing that can just be a little second off one way or the other way, but almost always it's just right on time. They can they can take a few takes to get there, but when they do it pays off. Oh, I, I think know. that's the thing that really like keeps me going, because if I am doing a fair few takes because I keep forgetting a certain word or something, it can be so frustrating. I do actually have loads of outtakes of me just like face palming because I've done three minutes of like flawless playing and then I came in with like the wrong word or something on one of the parts and I realised I have to do it all over again. Or like I realised afterwards that um, the video was all blurry or something or the lens cap was on. <laughs> How many hits have they got so far? Am I right thinking it's more than a million? Uh, not quite. So uh, they've been on various different platforms um, and... I think I counted up uh, between like Facebook and YouTube um, at the end of last year, and it had over eight hundred thousand views. Well, that's pretty impressive. Which really, yeah, was mind blowing, just to kind of have that reach with something that I've made in my bedroom. And have you got any feedback from any of the artists that you've covered? Yeah, so Coldplay tweeted the mashup that I made of of their songs. Fantastic. I tried to pick one song from every one of their albums that they've released so far and um, sort of package it up like a little advertisement for them. So, <laughs> how, how did they come across it? Had someone messaged them or did someone tweet to them? Or? Um, well, I would imagine it's probably some combination of um, the outlets that had shared that video. Because um, Cool FM had always been really supported in sharing stuff that I'd made. And Belfast Telegraph as well and the, Ind the Irish Independent. And it was shortly after the Irish Independent had shared it that I just got the tweet out of the blue where it said this mashup by Owen Denver is worth checking out. And I had to do like a triple take because I was like, is this, is this for real? Yeah. Oh, your, your, Twitter, your Twitter notification must have gone wild for the next couple of days after that. 999. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that was possible. I can't remember what it was. It was just stuck on the same number for quite a while. Yeah, it was just really surreal to just suddenly be exposed to 
lots and lots of people in like far away countries, um, write me messages in different languages, and I had to translate them and say thank you in their <laughs> given language. <laughs> oh, thank goodness for Google Translate, otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd have been sunk. Yeah. My GCSE French is pretty poor. <laughs> Je suis. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> So talking about cover versions, what would you say is the ultimate cover version? Well, it's got to be Hallelujah by Jeff Buckley. Hallelujah by Atta. It's a pretty good... It's a bit of a cliche now, but it it is just incredible. I also really love um, Churches do a really good cover of Arctic Monkeys, Do I Want to Know. There's a video of it on YouTube and I got really addicted to it. It's so good. But it's the kind of song that, like, there's no way you could do a bad version of it. You could do it, like, a reggae version of it would sound incredible. You could do a classical version of it would sound incredible. It's just that kind of song. In my mind, the best cover versions are ones that take the essence of the original song, but do it in their own style. Mm-hmm. In terms of, I think the best ver- the best example of that, and it's it's, it's probably not my favorite cover version, but it's my favorite attempt at doing something with the cover version. Scissor Sisters doing Comfortably Numb. Oh yeah. Because we think Comfortably Numb is like a big rock classic, mm-hmm. and they there's a lot of people who are quite uh, protective over it. Yeah. And they mm-hmm. said, let's just do the campus so- <laughs> version of it ever. And it, it was absolutely incredible, and mm-hmm. that broke them through. It it set it set them up as a fun band who are mm-hmm. happy enough to to almost cover cover an uncoverable song and do it in their own style. So yeah. I I think I think from yeah, where I I'm standing, that's it gives like, them an element of sophistication as well that they're not just covering like something that they think people will like. This it's literally something that's quite sophisticated. Yeah, and doing it in a zany way. Another great cover version also being, you know, was it Tim Flowers? Mike, Mike Flowers? Mike Wonder, Flowers. The Wonderwall. Wonderwall, yeah. Oh, that was, that was pretty... Was that a Christmas number one or something? It, it, Christmas number two. Oh. It was very close. It, well, how, who pipped it to the post? I, I think it was Robson Jerome. I'll need to check it out. That's a shame. It, because I, I, think, I think it was 95. And it's probably with um, Unchained Melody or something? Unchained Melody, yeah. Oh, jeez. But I'll, I'll need to look that up later on. But I, yeah. I think it was Robson Jerome. And uh, your most recent release was the Motion Picture Soundtrack, and you released it in quite an interesting way. Yeah, so it was kind of an accidental EP, to say, where, like as we mentioned about doing those mashup videos and the triptych videos, um, I had been making, I mean, I've always been uh, making lots of demos and working on stuff that I think I would end up releasing, but I had all these live videos that I didn't really know what to do with them. They didn't really seem like they would have their own place in between doing these covers. I felt like I wanted to sort of put a bit more weight behind it and it just kind of accidentally came together that I had about three or four songs already like videoed in this style and I thought I could just do do this as like a live EP. So every song was recorded live and I had songs that I thought this would really fit into this like style of with the atmosphere that I've sort of set with this EP where it was all very kind of sparse and personal and yeah, really sort of quite close to home, as opposed to Daydreamer, which had been a bit more kind of not bombastic, but slightly more out there, more chilled, more laid back, um, in some respects. And uh, motion picture soundtrack EP, I just recorded it all almost entirely from home, and then some of it I recorded with uh, Mike Mermeka and Tommy Keary, um, who videoed the first and last tracks, and. Yeah, they've gone down great. Yeah. I think my favourite track from the EP, has one that we've ri- were written about on the metaphorical boat, is You Don't Want to Love Me. I, just, mm. I absolutely love that song. It's just got a lovely melody to it. How did that song come about? 
That's always an awkward one, <laughs> given the topic. Um, it was written about somebody um, who doesn't know that it was written about them. Um, <laughs> no, I don't want them to know. But um, I, when I, when it came to sort of building up that song, like it came, it sort of flowed very naturally. I wrote it when I was driving, and I sort of wanted to create a texture of it to go to get back to the Beatles again. That was very sort of Eleanor Rigby esque. Um, and then when I finished it. It became my brother's favorite song that I'd written, and my sister's as well. And then uh, Peter McCauley, after he came to my launch gig, he was saying like, "You need to push this one. Like this is yeah. this is one that's going to get stuck in people's heads." So that was when I started uh, emailing people like a metaphorical boat to yeah. say, "This is my single." Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it's one of those songs that I call I, I call it a car park song. Basically, okay. Basically, <laughs> if, no, I'll, I'll, I'll say, basically, if there's there's a few, few songs that I hear. When I'm driving about in my car, mm-hmm. basically the song gets me so emotional that I have to stop in the nearest car park and just don't drive from it because I'm just so full of emotion oh, listening wow. to the song. So <laughs> it's only happened with a couple of songs. I think that song has happened with it's happened with the song by Best Boy Grip. It's happened with a James Ewell song, but that I think that's the class of a of a true emotional song. So, oh, that's that's really flattering it, you say so. But as I say, it's an absolutely lovely song and it's a great EP. Oh, that's cool. So what's what's next for Owen Denver? I've been very busy. I've kind of gone into like a hermit phase where I've been doing a lot of writing and a lot of recording from home. And I'm working on a couple of tracks with Trey Shepard at the moment, um, who, uh, yeah, he's a really fantastic producer. So I've basically taken to him what I thought was a finished product and was like, what do you think of this? And what would you do to this to sort of make it cooler? And he sort of gave his spin on it, which has made it sound a lot beefier, like it's sort of gone on steroids, but yeah. obviously still got the message of the song very much in there. Um, so I'm basically I'm planning on releasing a few singles quite soon. Yeah. I've got a lot, an awful lot of music on the go, and I've got an awful lot of ears listening to them to try and tell me like, like I like this one the best, or I like this one the best, because I want to think really carefully before I release my next thing. I want it to be... I wanted to create a buzz. I wanted to be a big deal, so yeah. I wanted to do it properly. And wh- when can we expect to hear these sort of songs? <laughs> I don't know if I'm willing to commit at this phase. I know men are bad with commitment, but uh, we'll we'll just hear it when we need to hear it. That's it. Well, Owen, thanks a lot for coming on the metaphorical boat. And if anyone wants to find a bit more about Owen Denver, how would they go about doing that? You can give me a Google. O W E N D N V I R. And I'm on Facebook, Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, all of the socials. You can find me there. That's great, Owen. Thanks a lot for stopping by to talk to us. I've been Christopher McBride, the captain of the Metaphorical Boat. Remember, you can subscribe to the Metaphorical Boat's podcast on iTunes and we're also on SoundCloud. And don't forget the original blog, www.metaphoricalboat.com. Thank you.